definitely creating content that helps people is really the solution. What really works is building a community, consistently doing events like webinars, and producing content specifically for certain categories. You earn that raise and you earn that job. Welcome to Future Fuzz, the digital marketing podcast. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. Uh, before we dive into the podcast today, i just like to say a really special thank you to everybody who's ever tuned in and listened to an episode. It really means a lot to me. It's been an absolute pleasure to start uh, the podcast. I always dreamed of having a little bit of a radio station when I was a kid and, and used to set up radio in my bedroom. And so it's absolutely wonderful to, uh, to run the podcast and invite such amazing guests along. Uh, we're focusing on Europe uh, at the moment because we feel that there are so many podcasts in the in the States for example uh, we're really trying to promote uh, podcasting in the European market and focusing on that niche of digital marketing uh, B2B sales and business development we've spoken to people who come from a product background from an operations background we've had so many great voices and we really do appreciate everybody who listens we want to grow the community we want to grow uh, this platform that we're building so we'd really appreciate it if you could follow us on iTunes. So if you go on iTunes, you, you can subscribe. Uh, if you're using Spotify, you can follow us and we'd really appreciate a, a star rating there as well. So when you look in um, Spotify and you've listened to a couple of episodes, you can give us a rating. This already helps. And if you're into YouTube, you can subscribe to us on YouTube and like some episodes there as well. Um, so once again, thank you so much. Um, if you know of people who want to join in the conversation, we're really looking to pe speak to uh, people who are in scale-ups, um, they work in digital marketing, they've got something interesting to say, they've got some knowledge to share. You're all really welcome to be on Future Fuzz. Uh, in this particular episode, we speak to Ferdinand Goodson about product-led sales. He's got a lot of great things to say, so I really hope you enjoy it. Thanks again for tuning in. Please follow, like, comment, rate. We, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hey, hey Ferdinand, how are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries at all. It's uh, wet and miserable today in Amsterdam, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's not been as bad as I'd feared, but uh, autumn is hitting us now. Yeah, yeah, it's about time, right? Because it's been far too warm. And I see you studied in Glasgow, so you must be used to very uh, poor weather. Yes, ironically, I left Glasgow to to get away from the rain, and then I came to Amsterdam, and it's not that much better. No, <laughs> it's about the same, right? I think a lot of people say to me, like, I'm, I lived in London for ages, and they're like, oh, London, it rains all the time. And I was like, mm, no, in Amsterdam, I think it rains more. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Different kind of rain, different kind of cadence, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the right word. Cadence is the right word. The cadence of rain in the Netherlands just soaks you right through. Great to have you on. Um, so we're talking today about product-led sales and uh, something that you term as the dark funnel, which is really, uh, really looking forward to speaking about that. Um, but before we get into that, it'd be great to hear about your background and why you started um, Reveal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I started in digital marketing, working for agencies, I don't know, about 10 years ago. And um, over the last years, I've built my career mainly at the intersection of commercial and product. And uh, I think this is kind of a development we're seeing more and more is that the lines between marketing and sales, the lines between marketing and product, they're becoming blurrier if you throw in things like customer experience, customer success, even more so. 
And um, usually at that kind of intersection space, that's where my sweet spot is. So I was the chief growth officer at a company called Recruity. I was the director of growth at a company called 3D Hubs. Uh, both companies exited in 2021. And off the back of that, I decided to start my own company. And one of the things that I really was passionate about was, you know, I mean, companies have, are they more customer centric than ever before? And that's really translated in how much we speak to customers. But it hasn't always necessarily translated in how often we use the insights from those discussions in our decision making. And we built Reveal as kind of a customer insights platform that helps teams, particularly product teams, infuse their decisions, day-to-day -day decisions with more customer data, more customer insights, especially on the qualitative side. Okay, so who are you targeting um, Reveal mainly towards? Is there any particular industry sector or a niche? Uh, yeah, who is it targeted to? We mainly work with companies that have digital products, and um, we work with some enterprise clients, mainly mid-sized businesses, and uh, very often the product and UX teams, the CX teams, those are the kind of teams, marketing teams as well, they will use Reveal quite, uh, quite extensively. And is that in, an, uh, let's say, for their apps or for their digital experiences online? Because I see, for example, you've worked with companies like uh, Signify and Postanel in the past as well. So is that across all areas or, or any in particular? It's across all areas. I mean, most of our customers are do have mainly digital touch points, experiences and products, mainly because that's the easiest form of feedback collection, right? It's much easier to collect feedback through an embedded form in an app than it is uh, in person on a, um, on a uh, uh, let's say, more analog experience. So, um, yes, we, we serve customer feedback and uh, service and product decisions across the board. But yeah, digital is really the main focus for most of our customers. Right. And before we came onto the podcast, we talked about product-led sales. Now, I've, I'm going to say I'm completely green on the topic, and, and I've heard about a little bit about it before, but that's something that you really um, use a lot in your daily work and something you have a lot of experience in. So when you say product-led sales, what exactly do you mean by that term? Yeah, there's a lot of terminology flying around there. I think product-led sales is kind of this nuance on the product-led growth movement that we've seen over the last uh, 10, 15 years or so. Um, the idea of product-led growth being that the product drives the growth of your business. Essentially, it places less emphasis on your traditional marketing and sales activities and more on your your onboarding, your user experience, the level to which you activate and engage users, these sort of things. So fundamentally, that has been kind of this product-led growth movement in practical terms is things like offering a free trial, offering a freemium model, trying to get customers to sign up in a self-service motion, getting customers to pay by themselves. So that was really this product-led growth kind of impetus. And product-led sales is essentially, uh, I think it's more the realization that everyone went crazy about product-led growth. And a lot of people, you know, as with any trend, people love to take it and run with it to the absolute extreme. And what you see, what you saw then over the last five years is a lot of companies that built their entire business on a PLG model, a self-service model, started hiring salespeople. And some of those companies chose to shift completely away from that product-led growth mentality. Um, I think recently Airtable is an example of this, that they said they're going to build they're going to build a, an enterprise sales motion. Um, I don't think they explicitly said that they're going to shift away from the PLG that has worked for them until now, but that is something that might happen. 
and other companies have tried to build their sales motions on top of their PLG motion, companies like Amplitude, for example. Mm. And um, product-led sales is really this idea of how do you leverage sales off the back of a product-led growth movement? Right, right. Okay. And that's also, but then that, that's key there that you need to listen to consumer and customer feedback and whoever is using the platform at that given time, right? I mean, there's so many examples of where I've been using tools and I'm like, oh, I wish it could do this. And if it did, it would make me happy and then I would use it more and then I would recommend it to others and then, and so on and so forth. So it's, it must be more crucial than ever. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because, I mean, the whole key difference here is as your company grows and you start targeting, very often as your company grows, you'll start targeting bigger accounts. You'll start trying to sell to bigger companies. Now, a PLG motion is very, very user-centric. The people who will sign up and try your product and get activated and they're going to love it, that's the user. And the bigger the company, standard sales knowledge or you know, sales 101 is the user and the buyer are not always the same person. You have kind of this decision-making unit and the user has more power in that than ever before. That is one of the trends we've seen is why PLG has grown so much. But very often the buyer or the person who has the final decision or the person who holds the budget will be a different person. And where a traditional kind of more, let's say, enterprise or high ACV-led sales motion will be all about, let's find the decision maker and trickle down the adoption of the product, PLG takes the opposite approach. It tries to lock in many people, many users into the product and then leverage those users to then get to the decision makers and close bigger deals. I think Miro is a good example of a company that does this very successfully. Yeah. They have people, you have a company of a thousand people or 10,000 people, hundreds of them are using Miro. If you then have champions who are using it, you can then go through the users to reach the buyer rather than the other way around. And that's why speaking to the users is so important because if you're not getting that feedback, you, you, you ideally want your sales, your marketing, your product and your CS to have a continuous feedback loop. Yeah, indeed. I think Miro is, is an excellent example of that. Um, also Amsterdam based, right? I mean, I think they're a Dutch company, if I'm not mistaken, they're based in Amsterdam. Uh, they are based in Amsterdam. I don't think they're originally a Dutch company, but okay. uh, they, they, they moved their headquarters here a, a few years ago and uh, they've built a lot of their operations out from Amsterdam. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. So that's a classic example. There, there's a, there's some way a little bit of a risk there, right? Cause I can imagine if hundreds of people in an organization are using Miro for free, then it's like completely chaos. There's like accounts all over the place and everything like that. But, um, it, then Miro would need to make it easy for those organizations to combine all of those workspaces together, I guess. Right. Yes. And this is where the product led aspect comes into play, right? Because if you say, let's say you have a company of a thousand people and dozens of people have started creating Miro accounts, how do you, how do you consolidate that into one experience? And things like single sign-on, things like the second you create a at Miro.com account or, or an account with that kind of email address, you're, you're being part of a wider platform or something like that. And this is not, I'm not, I'm using this just as an example. I don't actually know how Miro does this on the back end. And I think it's just about looking at those product solutions to bringing these users together and then having a very strong position from which you can then go to the decision-making unit and start closing bigger deals and say, okay, look, 20 people, 30 people are already using your using our product. Um, this is something your whole company should be using because look at how successful these people are. It's it's a combination there, a balance. Yes, yeah. understand. And um, then this is a really interesting topic that's come up time and time again, is that um, markets are quite challenging right now. There's uh, companies that are cutting back on costs. I think I feel I feel like we we had a little bit of a consumer 
a recession, and now it feels like we're in a little bit of a business recession, I, I would call it. You know, people are being a little bit more cautious with their money, and lots of CFOs are getting involved in discussions, and there's a lot of changes in, in, in business, especially in big in big SaaS and some of the big advertising companies. Like if you look at the, the kind of changes that are happening in Google and, and, and sales teams you know, all over the tech world. Um, when you're going in to speak to organizations, how many decision makers or how many people are in, involved in these processes? That totally depends on the organization. So, yeah, that's very hard. That's that's very hard question to answer because I've worked with companies where a decision making unit can be five six people because you will have um, you'll be sending, for example, if we're sending to a UX team, you'll have the UX team, but then you'll have some stakeholders from product, and then suddenly you'll have someone from finance, but then you'll also have in very large kind of transforming enterprise companies, the chief information officer or the head of digital transformation. And suddenly you're dealing with a lot of different people who have completely different goals, right? The user wants to have a specific user problem solved. You know, they're struggling with something in their day to day and they want that to be facilitated. The digital transformation officer wants to make sure they're standing on, they're, they're on track for their kind of digital transformation process. The finance uh, person is uh, way more focused on the budget. They're, the 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 head of the department cares more about adoption so there are definitely different needs that you need to address for different users and different uh, people in this uh, dmu and you've also got to take into account procurement as well in some of the larger organizations and that yes and that as well the cherry on top brilliant let's move on to um then the importance of demand generation so um you've spoken about um this terminology dark funnel before it sounds really um, interesting so what do you then mean by dark funnel and and generating demand yeah on a high level i think this all boils down to the fact that the traditional way of growing businesses is slowly proving to have a limiting return what i mean is that traditionally companies would just spend a bunch of money on ads they would then try to funnel leads onto a website. They would get those leads to sign up for uh, a trial or a demo. On the side, you probably had some outbound motion where salespeople were reaching out directly, and then people would come into the product. If they have the luxury of even trying the product, very often the sale would happen without anyone ever seeing any product other than some demo, and then you would close that deal. And I think a lot of people are starting to see that this leads to incredible saturation and a an approach that is not user, user first. And I think we're entering an era where two things are more important than ever before. One is product and the other one is brand. And um, I mean, I can't claim the, uh, you know, I, I'm not the one, I'm not the person behind the term dark funnel. Uh, someone else coined that. But the idea of the dark funnel is essentially think practically about how somebody chooses in a B2B context, how does somebody choose to buy a new product? Most B2B products are not bought, bought as impulse buys. It's very rare that somebody will see an ad for, I don't know, uh, uh, a, a recruitment software platform or any kind of platform and suddenly say, oh, I'm just going to buy this. The, the process is too complex for that. So the process that people, the journey people go through for buying products is m much longer, much more complex. So maybe you know, I'm struggling with something and maybe I'm a, let's say I'm the head of HR and I'm struggling with something one day. And then I go to a meetup the week after and somebody says, Hey, yeah, we just started using this tool. That's kind of cool. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, you sign up to an online community 
and somebody else mentions that tool you heard in that meetup the other week. And then you go home, you go, you go home, you take a holiday, you come back and then you, you start talking to some colleagues and somebody said, oh yeah, you know, I just started, uh, I just read this article about how this company is using this tool. And then you go check it, check it out. And then maybe you get a retargeting ad a few weeks later and then you forget about it. And then a year later you go to a meetup and someone mentions it and you're like, ah, oh, you know, Maybe it's interesting. You explore it and you don't need it. And then another three few months pass and you get a new job and this company says, we need a tool like this. And then you say, you know what? I think we should check out this tool. What I mean by this is some of these touch points you will be able to track. You know, if somebody clicks an ad and you have a 28-day attribution window, you're going to know that there's a correlation between that ad click and the purchase. But last click attribution is very rarely, and even multi-click attribution and these more complex attribution models, they don't account for... I would say 70, 80% of the touch points that actually lead you to become aware of a brand, to become aware of a problem, to become aware of a solution, and to actually start considering it. And that's what the dark funnel is about. It's about this idea of these intangibles are really crucial in a decision-making process, and you need to account for them in your marketing. I think one of the uh, the classics in, in the dark funnel is um, word of mouth, right? I'm, I mean, a friend of mine, we, we have a, like an, an entrepreneur's like WhatsApp group where for some reason, like a, a few of us mates, we went to universities together. We've all started up businesses. It's just the way that it happens. And then, um, uh, my friend Greg was like, Oh, you got to check out Loom. I mean, this is, this is a while ago, right? And I was like, Loom. And he's like, it's brilliant. You'll absolutely love it. You got to use it. And I didn't, I didn't act upon it. I really didn't act upon it, but it's in the back of my mind. And then uh, it came up again. Oh, there's Loom. I've been, I'm using Loom. And I'm like, Loom, I've heard of that before. I need to use that. I need to check that out. And it was a long process, right? And now um, I'm, I'm totally bought in. I use it on a daily basis. I upgraded for their AI tools. I don't know if you've seen the AI um, uh, tool from yep. Loom. It's pretty smart, right? It gives your video a title. You don't even have to worry about it anymore. Sometimes you have to edit it a little bit if it gets it wrong. Um, but let's say nine times out of 10, it's great. And indeed, that whole, I would probably say that uh, 80% of that decision-making process was um, pretty much, you know, offline. It was untraceable. I went to Loom. Yeah. I probably went to the website three times. I mean, how, how does a marketeer, you know, deal with that? Is there anything, any tips that you would give? Future First is sponsored by SalesSource, B2B pipeline management and sales growth for your business. Yeah, well, this is the problem where this kind of obsession with data-drivenness and, you know, I, my, my career was born out of the fact that I was uh, one of the lead trainers at a company called Growth Tribe. We yeah. were one of the biggest proponents of data-driven, experiment-driven marketing in Europe. And I'm a big believer that data is an important part of your – should be an important part of your decision-making. But the key here is we get so obsessed with metrics and tracking that, you know, what gets measured gets managed. And, you know, there's a lot of truth in all of that. But – the fact is, just because you can't track something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And that is something that marketers have to understand. Now, that doesn't mean that you can then just do all kinds of crazy stuff uh, with the justification of, well, it's working. Trust me, I don't have any proof, but it's working. The key here, there, there's a few things at play here. Uh, I'll take your example with Loom. You had these different touch points. Some were offline, some were online. But regardless, probably 80% of them, the marketing team at Loom would not be able to attribute. It's maybe that meetup they did. It's maybe that LinkedIn post they made. It's maybe whatever. I mean, I don't know what Loom does, but uh, in terms of their marketing, I know they got acquired by Atlassian yesterday, so um, they're doing something right. That's great. Like, that's uh, very current then. I don't know why I mentioned Loom, but that's good to know. 
Very good. Yeah. Um, but the, the the key here is that if any of those touch points hadn't existed, maybe if one or two hadn't existed because there were so many, you probably still would have made it. it. It's down to this. It's the how many touch points does somebody have with your brand? And I think the key is this. When you're doing paid ads, when you're saying best recruitment software in the market, that is a high intent search. You know, I need recruitment software, so I'm going to search what is the best recruitment software in the market. But when I do that, I already know what my problem is. I know that there is software that can solve it. I might already have had touch points with different companies that provide these kind of solutions. But 90% of your future customers are not at that stage yet. The, 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 and the key here is to differentiate demand generation from lead generation. Lead generation is all about tapping into people who already have the demand. I want these shoes. Mm. I want this software. I want this product, this solution. There, then you paid ads, they work quite well because then it's just about hitting that, tr that trigger landing when they are looking for a solution. But the real key to long-term growth is to generate demand in the first place. And that means going to people who do have the pain or who are likely to at some point have the pain to educate the market, to make them aware of it, and very, very early on position your brand and your product as a key leader in the space. So that if this person maybe takes one or two years, like when you came around, you said, you know, I need to make this little video for a potential client. You didn't even have to do research. You just went, oh, yeah, I'm going to use Loom because Indeed. everyone's using Loom. So that's yeah. why I'm going to do And the same goes for Miro. The same goes for all of these tools that, that, that build very strong demand on a very strong brand proposition. So if you have a great brand, you are just always ever present in the potential demand groups kind of conscience if you then have a great product experience it's where plg and demand gen come together that you make it very easy for those who are for whom you're generating demand can actually get into your product get the experience get activated and start using as quickly as possible that I flow is crucial that is absolutely crucial. And I think that this relates really, uh, really well to problem based selling, uh, making people aware of a problem that they maybe weren't actively aware of, or they sort of have it in the back of their mind, and they weren't actively searching to fix that particular problem. But one classic example is a project we've been working on, which is that um, advertisers find it very difficult to measure a return on investment for, for influencer campaigns. Right. They put a lot of effort into this. It's very difficult to measure the return in many cases. And um, we've gone out with that message to people. And then the response is really interesting because they say, yeah, actually, that is a problem. And uh, I never thought about it like that before. But um, that, that could also be another trigger as well. Right. Where do you think there's the sort of balance between that? Um, um, some people would call it like an inbound um, request to then pushing a message to a market with an outbound sort of methodology. Where do you think there's a, a balance there? I think the two need to work together. For, for the way I look at it, I have a very particular view on how outbound works. You know, I think there's generally two things that you're doing. When, when you're doing outbound sales, there's two things you're doing. You're either trying to nurture intent and generate demand amongst people who don't have it, so that's method number one, which is I'm targeting super relevant people who I believe have the pain and I am using the right content, the right messaging, the right story to make them aware of it. And over a period of six to 12 to 24 months to start warming up to the idea of maybe buying my product. And that needs to be all about creating value. 
and needs to be about positioning yourself as a brand, as a thought leader in the space. And this is where all the materials you will create for your brand, your content campaigns, your brand messaging, the case studies you're building, the PR initiatives you do, everything you do to position yourself as, hey, we're the cool kids in this market. All of that you can reuse and need to reuse in that outbound effort. Now, the other approach that I think companies take to outbound, because people have sometimes unrealistic expectations on what outbound can deliver, there is another way you can do outbound, which is essentially, I'm going to reach out to 50,000 people. And if I reach out to 50,000 people, 100 of them are bound to already be in the lead stage, where they're already, they have the demand, they have the pain, they're already looking. I'm just coincidentally, you know, sliding into their DMs at the right time. And I think those are two very different approaches is are you taking kind of like this machine gun approach where you're just saying, okay, I know that 99% of these people are not ready to buy, but I'm just focusing on hitting those 1% who are already looking, or am I building and nurturing demand from the ground up? And I think this is the key that there is no real difference between outbound and inbound in the sense that, of course, the methods are different. Same way as writing a blog article and launching a PR campaign and organizing an event are all different things. Outbound is just one other method that I put in that box. Um, the key here is, you know, how do you know what works if you're not tracking, if you can't attribute it? And I think that's partially a strategic decision. You have a vision on the market and you have a vision on, you know, I want to be the company that everybody knows. That's a strategic decision. That's almost a decision that you can make as a CMO, as a CCO, as a CGO, where you say, this is just our strategy is that we want to be the guys that everybody knows that you don't even need to necessarily measure that to make that decision. Then you need to look at what can you measure. Of course, you want to focus on your attributable data, but you also need to talk to your customers. You know, if you talk to 100 customers and 100 of them say, my favorite online community is like we talk, everyone we talk to says we love Lenny Rachitsky and his community. We right. all hang out on Lenny's community. We all read his newsletter. They all do it, like 85 90%, almost all of them. It then makes sense to somehow collaborate with that community or that newsletter or to maybe sponsor that newsletter or to maybe attend that meetup and meet people. It just makes sense because I've heard from 85 90% of my users that they hang out there. Um, you need to look at those early indicators and you need to look at, are people reading your content? Are people engaging with your website? Are people answering your messages? And those early indicators become a really important signal in that dark funnel. You've got to ask the questions as well, right? You hit the nail on the head there. If you don't ask your audience or your customers the questions, how are you going to know? Um, and I, I feel like there's many, many instances where people simply don't do that. They make assumptions, right? And, I, and I, I do believe you hit also on a very good point there as well. It's like the spray and pray machine gun approach is that um, you have to be really careful there because you're just going to create more and more and more noise. And that's highly, that's really, really risky for a brand. You know, I, I, I mean, we, we see it all the time. So, um, yeah, that, that's absolutely uh, spot on. Are there any, are there any examples where you've asked your customer base any other different questions to just find stuff out? How, how do you do that? Yeah, I'm a big believer in building relationships. I think, uh, when you look at, and again, this is what it comes down to is, what through what lens are you making certain decisions? So we do events and meetups and webinars and we feature great product people on our LinkedIn page. And we recently did a conference here in Amsterdam, the first ever product discovery conference in Europe. And, you know, if you would take a very standard traditional ROI approach where you're just measuring how many people signed up and how many people paid, probably you could argue that it was quite a lot of effort. It broke even, so that's fine. Uh, you could argue, you could make arguments about is this the best 
channel if you're comparing it to other. But the reality is that we are organic um, traffic and growth has, has gone up since then. Our direct traffic and growth has gone up since then. People are engaging with us way more directly. When we send emails about things, we get more answers. When we ask people to participate in things, we get more replies. All the speakers are talking about us to other people. People are reaching out to us. You're getting these hand raisers. You know, that's one of the big things in like product let's sales. Like, who are the hand raisers? Who's raising their hand saying, Hey, I want to check this out. Um, and, um, I've got off track here. I can't remember what the question was. So what sort of questions are you then asking your customers to, to get the, the, the best quality information from them? Yeah, I think the two things is what questions do you ask and how do you create opportunities to ask them? So when people sign up to reveal, they get asked, why are you, what, what are you, and we make it part of the onboarding. So it doesn't feel like some dry survey. It's really, hey, we're going to set up your account the way you need it, but we need to get some information first. Are you looking to track your customer journeys? Are you looking to create an insights repository? Are you trying to generate insights with AI? What are you trying to do here and why are you trying to do it? So that's one place where we ask the kind of questions we ask. When we do sales, we really spend 90% of a sales call understanding the use case. We don't try to sell at all, actually. We just come in and say, like, our assumption is if they, if they see that we get their problem, they're going to assume that we know how to solve it. And I think that's the, what you said about the problem-based selling. It's all about understanding the problems you're solving, understanding what problems are you solving, when do they experience those problems, what are they currently doing to deal with those problems, and where do they usually go to f learn and get inspired? Um, and some examples of how we've asked these kind of questions is our onboarding forum. It is our sales demos. It is um, even uh, post-trial forums where we ask people. We do meetups and events where we ask these kind of things. We just reach out to people on LinkedIn and say, hey, look, I'd love for you to answer three questions. And uh, we just try to do these kind of things. And what's really funny is, when you reach out to people with just an honest desire to learn, you'll be surprised how many, how often they then come around and say, hey, these guys really understand this problem I have. I'm going to go check you guys out. Oh, could I get a trial? Could I get a demo? And I think that's, uh, that's what it comes down to is when you create value for people, you try to understand what they're, the problems they're trying to solve. The rest will follow. Indeed, it's uh, the old saying that information is king, that when you get that information, and uh, you can help people solve a problem that's going to make a huge impact and they'll trust you right trust is uh, number one uh, in, in any sort of b2b uh, sales decision amazing ferdinand time flies when you're having fun this is the other old saying brilliant ferdinand thanks so much for coming on the show um can you tell us before you go a little bit about the event that you've just run uh, in amsterdam yeah so last month we did europe's first ever product discovery conference we brought together top speakers. We had about 400 people there in a super nice historical building here in Amsterdam. And it really kind of brought together, it really consolidated this idea of building relationships with people, bringing people together just to learn from them, to share with them. It makes such a big difference. And I think that's where honesty and real value creation and real empathy for the customer just those are the most valuable things you can kind of try to foster and work on to grow your business in the long run. I think that's, uh, and uh, this event was a really good example of that, that people really engaged with it. And since then we've seen organic traffic, direct traffic. We've seen people, you know, hand raisers, people coming in and asking us questions and asking to try reveal. Uh, we, we saw a lot of really positive response from that. And I think these are the kind of things that if you take a very standard traditional paid ad driven ROI approach 
And I'm not saying paid ads aren't important. They can be a very important part of this puzzle, but it is a puzzle. And you need to have this whole ecosystem in place, this web of commercial value that you're creating for people. Fantastic. So we hope to see next year Europe's uh, first product-led uh, marketing event again in September, right? Will it be in September again, 2024? Remains to be seen. Good. All right. Well, keep, it, keep us posted. Awesome. Ferdinand, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, we'll put the uh, link in the comments of the podcast where you can find Reveal and where you can follow Ferdinand. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Justin. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in and making the choice to listen to this podcast. If you liked what you've heard today, please don't forget to subscribe.